Hi, I'm Rachel Peacock. And I'm April Lunston. And this is Are, Are You, you fucking, fucking Shitting Me? <laughs> so uh, this is our new podcast. It's our first episode. Well, technically, this wasn't going to be our first episode. But, but um, <laughs> listen, times are strange. Uh, we aren't normally going to be just a political podcast, but this is kind of a time-sensitive issue. So today we're talking about gerrymandering. Gerrymandering, which is something that I didn't really know all that much about until recently. I'd heard the term. I basically knew that it wasn't good, <laughs> but I didn't know exactly what it meant, where it came from, and how it affects our elections. Uh, so we thought we'd do an episode on gerrymandering because it's a huge thing right now. And actually, there's a lot of change taking place. Uh, yeah, it turns out that this is something that a lot of people, both sides of the aisle, are actually not fans of. So here, just to start with, is kind of the dream ad. The ad if a politician told you exactly what was going to go down in the next election. I'm gerrymandering, and I approve this message. Virginians need change and hope or whatever, and I'll bring change and hope or whatever by picking my voters and redrawing district maps to ensure I always get reelected. Heck, Every single member of the General Assembly who was already in office got re-elected last year thanks to the Commonwealth's unfair redistricting process. As your representative, I pledge to eliminate competition in elections. I'll eat away at voter rights by redrawing district maps. I can even draw lines to carve out families and neighborhoods who might vote against me. Isn't that super cool? All right, so that was gerrymander, obviously a play on words. Um, it's from One Virginia 2021, um, and it just really lays out exactly how gerrymandering works. And how it fucks all of us. Yeah, we're <laughs> fucked. <laughs> if we can't change it, which there's hope. Yeah, so, and I recently talked to Brian Olson, who... Uh, has given TED Talks about this. He has created an algorithm and created maps to show what the country would look like without gerrymandering. I talked to Brian Olson about the history of gerrymandering and also about where he sees change taking place. My name is Brian Olson. I'm a software engineer. I currently work for a company called Patients Like Me, uh, but my gerrymandering work has been an independent project for the last 15 years. Can you explain what the term gerrymandering means and, and where it came from? Sure. Uh, gerrymandering uh, started, the first gerrymander was in 1812 in Massachusetts. Uh, the governor, Elbridge Gerry, signed into law a set of uh, congressional district maps that were drawn up in political cartoon as this monstrous lizard that was declared to be the, a, a salamander or a gerrymander. And so that's how the term came about. And the, the goal of it was 
that they realized, oh, if I string together all of these particular towns and counties, I can get a set of voters who are very agreeable to me and will always reelect me and my people. And so that was the original goal of gerrymandering was to consolidate party power and create a safe seat so that the one person or one party would always win. Did the public at the time even know that this was going on? And oh, if yeah. they did, what was their, they did. So what was their reaction at the time? The reaction was ridicule. The reaction was, this is a dirty trick. This is a monster that is uh, distorting our democracy. Uh, it has only gotten more intense. And especially lately in the last 20 years with advances in computing power, the tools um, we now have the data down to a very fine resolution of who lives where. And you can, you know, carve your district very finely to grab specific neighborhoods of specific people towards a demographic end to, you know, get the kind of district you want. How do you think it affects the political process? Well, the, the safe seat phenomenon, I believe, is leading to more extreme people getting elected or more extreme policies coming out of the people who are elected. They don't feel that they need to compromise and go along to get to keep their job because they can just satisfy the most extreme members of their party. They can just satisfy their base and they have no need to keep a collegial collaborative environment in Congress. And so I believe that has been, uh, adding to the breakdown of the functionality in our Congress. Do you think there are any maps that stand out as particularly bad? Maryland is one of the worst maps and North Carolina. Both of those have the, the, hall, the visual harm, hallmarks of gerrymandering are you look at a map and it has lots of little tendrils and fjords and fiddly, fiddly bits around the edges of the districts as they reach out to grab specific pockets of people in different parts of the map. And I would say that North Carolina and Maryland are the worst I've seen. Are any states reforming now or, or any districts reforming now or, or are they, is it in the works for anyone? Yeah, several states have enacted an independent commission model where instead of the state legislature directly creating the district maps, this appointed commission will go away and do it. Uh, sometimes the procedure to make this independent commission is just still reinforcing the, the two-party establishment and putting a fig leaf over it because the two parties nominate an equal number of people to the commission and then the commission goes away and says, yes, we will make a fair map. And that is kind of working. California has this now and its map seems to be a little bit better. Uh, Arizona has this and the state legislature actually sued to block the commission's proposed district maps. So that one's still kind of up in the air as well. Ohio passed a very interesting reform by ballot initiative in 2015, so we'll see its effects in five or six years. But that one really proposed an algorithm that says, step by step, you will make districts this way. You will do this with these counties and this with these cities and build up procedurally a fair map that 
doesn't have a lot of room for funny business. Well, that sounds totally hopeful, at least in California, especially. Yeah, it sounds like a few states are starting to move away from redistricting. At least there's been some reforms. It sounds like there are different ways to go about it. And I don't know which way is going to prove to be the best since this is such a new thing. I know there was an article in the Washington Post, I think in December, uh, that talked about how redistricting wasn't really working in California. Uh, 12 years ago, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, that's right, the Terminator. <laughs> Terminating term limits. So yeah, I mean, when Sh Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor, he worked really hard towards the idea of redistricting reform. So even though theoretically it wasn't going to benefit them or it could hurt them, um, he was able to get the parties to pass this reform, which is really an issue. Except this Washington Post article says maybe it doesn't really work because for the past 12 years since it's been enacted, all of the districts have voted exactly the same way they did before. But it's not really a fair representation of how well this works because California swings Democratic anyway. Yeah, it's not just that California is a blue state, but it's a deep blue state, meaning it's really hard to go red in counties. So if you look at a map, there are different levels of like purple states and this and that. California is deep, deep blue. So it's kind of hard to say that just because California hasn't swung different ways, that it means that redistricting doesn't work. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens in other states. We wanted to speak with someone directly who was working in a state that needed some redistricting reform. And I spoke with Brian Cannon, and I'll have him introduce himself right here. My name is Brian Cannon. I'm the executive director of One Virginia 2021. We're working on reforming the process by which we draw the districts for Congress in Virginia, and we also the way we draw the districts for our state house and state senate seats. So One Virginia 2021 has been around for, for three years now. Um, our goal is to, by 2021, have fixed the process in Virginia for redistricting reform. And uh, we're not concerned with an outcome. The Democrats and Republicans and Greens and Libertarians and all those can figure out who wins elections by, by actually running candidates and figuring out how to run in the places they need to. We just want the process not to be have a thumb on the scale by the incumbents. Um, Virginia is in a unique situation now. For the first time in our state's history, we have been gerrymandered by both parties. In 2011, we had the most disgusting bipartisan effort where the Democrats who controlled the state Senate gerrymandered their districts and the Republicans who controlled the state House gerrymandered theirs. And the two sides just agreed to pass their own the other guy's gerrymander in exchange for having theirs be protected as well. Literally the worst bipartisanship you can get. Shortly thereafter that, um, a number of folks got together, and just as a sample size, one of them was a founding member of the Virginia Tea Party Federation. One of them was a former head of the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, one of them was a former Democratic delegate. One of them was a former statewide elected Republican. Uh, one of them was you know, incredibly active in the League of Women Voters. I mean, really, everybody across the spectrum 
got together and said, these districts don't belong to these politicians or political parties. They belong to us as Virginians. Okay, so why is One Virginia focusing on gerrymandering specifically? Gerrymandering is one of the kind of handful of big issue um, items that are out there in our democracy right now that are really holding back and preventing sensible policies from from making from getting their fair hearing and, and getting through. And uh, when our lower house of Congress, especially the House of Representatives, isn't responsive to the will of the people because of gerrymandering, uh, then you're, you're stuck with a Congress that's just completely paralyzed and won't even get basic things done. You look at Zika funding. Forget something controversial like passing a budget or tackling big issues of the day. Just look at funding to, to stop Zika, where President Obama requested emergency funding for that like in February, and Congress still hasn't addressed the issue, and, and those mosquitoes will bite Republicans and Democrats. They don't care. Um, yeah, for those keeping track, that was February of 2016. A full year has passed, and there's been no movement on an emergency health care need. So why the delay? So what, what, what gerrymandering does at its, at its best for, for gerrymandering is it makes these districts, as many as it possible, uncompetitive. Now, not to say that if you fix gerrymandering alone, that then we will magically have competitive districts everywhere. But this is the baseline thing you can do is getting politicians to stop drawing their own voting districts, right? Because what they do with it, it's not just partisan. It's personal. They carve out people who have run against them previously or who might run against them in the future, not only just from the other party, but internally as well in a primary challenge. I mean, it's a very personal incumbent protection racket. And so when you, when you can't even get good folks to run for office for all the normal reasons why would anybody would not want to put themselves and their family through that, uh, let alone you're carving them out of the district on top of that, we really hurt competition. Um, last November, every, how, every seat for the House of Representatives was up for re-election, but only 36 out of 435 were competitive. That's embarrassing. And so you wonder why, uh, you know, the, the lower house of, of Congress isn't responsive at all. It's because they don't have to be. They're not, there's not even a competition. And competition, by the way, when I say that, I define it kind of the academic literature usually defines it as within 10 percentage points. So com competitive would even be 55 to 45, and I think that's, pretty, that's a pretty comfortable win if I'm on the 55 side. And then, you know, I think Iran has a greater turnover in ratio than us. And, and President Reagan mentioned in the late 80s, his last year of his presidency, he mentioned that the Soviet Politburo had a higher turnover rate than Congress did. Uh, and that's still true today, and, and, and embarrassingly so. So essentially what's happening, if I'm getting this right, is these representatives are creating their own sort of back alley tenure, where they, they don't need to do anything. They've just got job security. So they can just sit there, collect whatever income they get from it, and not need to take care of anyone's um, need absolutely yeah no it, it is tenure in Congress it's um, it's you know it, it makes it hard to argue against term limits because you would think we'd have natural term limits by elections but when they rig the elections for themselves we don't even get that I'm glad that you used the word rigged um, because I know even in the 2016 presidential election we kept hearing this term rigged but everybody was throwing out the electoral college that's where the focus was mm -hmm. um, and it's in the name of your documentary, Jerry Rigged, which is fantastic. Um, oh, thank you. This really is the the local level of rigging where it's, it seems to be truly what's happening. And it, it seems there was a lot of spin of, like, things aren't rigged, but this kind of shows that 
that things are. <laughs> is that a yeah, fair and accurate assessment here? Uh, absolutely. I, you know, sure, the Electoral College is what it is, but, but no one's manipulating the Electoral College today. People are manipulating voting districts actively right now. Um, so whether they're court-ordered redrawings or, or whatever, every, every decade um, we're required in every state of the union to redistrict based on uh, equal population requirements from one man, one vote and Baker v. Carr, and uh, as well as state constitutional requirements that have that in there as well. And so we redistrict, but we let the majority of states let the people who are the most self-interested draw their own, uh, their own districts. And so there's no other way to put that, but it's rigged. It's like asking a batter to call his own balls and strikes. So uh -huh. how is it even legal? How is this something that, um, <laughs> is a legal thing that they can do? Well, we hope it's not going to be for much longer, but um, the the legality of it, I mean, it's it's it, you know, it's a power left to the states, and it was and for a long time it was not abused. It often wasn't even even done. Um, I mean, it was it, it happened to you know Patrick Henry and James Madison. Um, you know, it happened anecdotally, but not to the degree at which we're in today, where we have you know a ton of data about who everyone is, including credit card data and voting history and things like that. Um, and you add that on with projected algorithms of where people will move in districts and things like that. And they're able to really hyper gerrymander these districts. So while you know JFK and Reagan and, and George uh, and, and, and George H.W. Bush and Barack Obama have all called for redistricting reform, the, the problem has really gotten out of hand lately. Uh, there's a story from the last redistricting cycle where the Democrats were trying to protect uh, a longtime incumbent Democratic senator. And uh, to do so, they had heard that later that year, in the fall, that that incumbent Democratic senator was going to be challenged by an up-and-coming member of the uh, local county board of supervisors, a guy named Bryce Reeves, kind of square-jawed, Captain America-looking guy. Um, and, and he was a, kind of a Tea Party conservative, and he had a really good shot. He's going to provide a good challenge to this incumbent Democratic senator. So what the Democrats did in 2011 when they drew the district is they went into Fawn Lake, the neighborhood where Bryce Reeves and his family lived, and they literally drew the Reeves family out of the district so that wow. they wouldn't have to run against Bryce Reeves. Now, in, in kind of like a Charlie Brown trying to kick the football moment, they got the wrong Reeves family they missed. And yeah, right. And uh, and Bryce Reeves is now the state senator from that district. Um, whatever. I mean, this happens, you know, a dozens of times around Virginia this last cycle and previously. I mean, they target individual people. That's a lot of power for the government to have, right? That's way too much to, for the government to be able yeah. to discriminate against you on your political beliefs. And it's disgusting. It's it's it hurts competition, yeah. and it's just frankly, there's no other word for it by besides cheating. Maybe rigged, right? Uh, and I and I think that's the, the the big issue. And and the other thing I would think of is is I would be remiss if I didn't mention this because race is a big issue um, in redistricting, especially in Virginia. And mm -hmm. figuring out how to get that right isn't easy. The Voting Rights Act has been you know manipulated for one party or another's benefit since you know pretty much since its inception. The goal being if you had a cohesive enough group, a minority, racial, ethnic, or language, you should keep them together so that they have an opportunity to elect a candidate of their choice instead of splitting them apart like what happened so frequently before the Voting Rights Act was passed. Um, what that does is that kind of packs African-American voters into those districts, and then it, it bleaches out the other 
uh, districts. And so the Republicans who are in the surrounding districts never have to worry about black uh, concerns because they don't have any black people in their district. And the delegates and senators and congressmen in those districts are so safe that they never have competition. But I think it goes even, it's even more nefarious. And, I, and I, Virginia's a good example of this. If you look at Virginia's history, we've only elected a black guy statewide twice. It happened in the 80s. I was in elementary school. We elected Doug Wilder twice, once the lieutenant governor, once the governor. Um, but that's it. And in this conversation, you've got to think about what is going on, because we do have black politicians who are good and, and, and know how to campaign and things like that, but they're not, because they don't ever have a competition, because they're never challenged, they don't have to raise a lot of money and they don't have to campaign very hard. So they're not really in fighting shape to take it to the next level um, and to go statewide. We've had some try, but they just haven't done it. And just this past uh, November, we were looking at a possibility of Tim Kaine becoming the vice president. And so there was all this backroom kind of dealing and, and talk and rumors about, well, who should take, who should the governor appoint in his place if Tim Kaine becomes the vice president because the governor would have the appointment of Virginia. And one of the leading names was Congressman Bobby Scott, who served for almost 30 years in, in Congress in the Virginia's third congressional district, African-American. And yet, the knock against Congressman Scott was, well, we don't know if he can raise $20 million to run a statewide race, which drove me nuts because I'm like, Bobby Scott's never had to raise $20 million. It's, it's not just a disservice because, you know, Virginia, we have 20% African-Americans. We only have 12.5% in our state legislature. Um, but I think even more nefarious than that is the lack, we don't have any statewide elected office holders who are African-American. This packing black voters in these districts that is a super nefarious process um, whereby black voters are disenfranchised and black politicians are, are also put at a disadvantage as well. And in fairness, some of them vote for this. So it's a, it's a mess. And that's why I think it's just, it's got to be taken out of the hands of the politicians. We've got to have, you know, clear, objective, transparent criteria for how to do this, and we've got to have people that have the citizens' interest at heart, not their own districts at heart doing this. Yeah, it's, it, it's I mean, the word I can only think of is bonkers. I mean, and it's used mm -hmm. in, it sounds like, in two major ways. One is to specifically target the opponent and take them out of, out of your district, mm -hmm. and the other is to basically brain drain by, by race, drain out all of a certain demographic and put them all in one area so then all these other districts no longer have any representation in there even though they may be more regionally correct and doesn't it affect how many seats then the Democrats or Republicans get you know maybe there's 40% Democrats and 60% Republicans and yet you're mm -hmm. getting seven seats to the Republicans and one Democrat or vice versa. Absolutely. And there's every now and then I get somebody saying, oh, redistricting doesn't matter. Um, it's really just all residential sorting, which I think Dave Daly's recent book, um, it's called Rat Fox. It really debunks the, the big sort theory there. But I love it when every time I get an email, and you get it occasionally from somebody who says, oh, redistricting doesn't matter. Gerrymandering has no real effect. See this, you know, whatever academic study that's like a one-off. And I always think, if it didn't matter, they wouldn't fight so hard to keep that power. One thing I noticed in your documentary is there was a moment where um, many people were speaking um, in favor of redistricting mm -hmm. reform, but no one spoke in opposition of it, and it was still squashed. <laughs> so I guess my question is, if the fox is in charge of the hen house, how do we put a stop to the practice? History tells us a number of lessons about how to change a, a process that 
benefits the entrenched, right? So, um, you know, if you look at women's suffrage, one of the big lessons I learned from that is not, not only did women organize and men organize and have uh, made it a visible issue, right, brought it to the forefront, uh, some even went to jail and, and I believe even one died for it, but on top of that, when the Soviets took over Russia, um, which was shortly before we got the right to vote for women, when the Soviets took over Russia, they, uh, it was, the revolution there was led by women shopkeepers. And so the women in Russia got the right to vote before the women in America. And so when uh, the Soviet uh, uh, um, uh, dip, uh, diplomats and stuff came over to America, they, that, that fact embarrassed Woodrow Wilson. And the women who were organized in America didn't let them forget it. Right? So it takes a you got to be right on the policy. You got to have good organization and people supporting you, and then you got to shame the rest of the people into it. <laughs> shame is a huge motivator, that's for sure. Uh, once the shame has set in, what then? You got to get it into the hands of some umpires, and there's a number of ways to do that. You can learn lessons from uh, from California, from Washington, from Iowa, from uh, from Arizona. You can learn lessons from all this. There's a number of ways. We're not dogmatic about the solution as far as you have to have a seven-member mm -hmm. commission or you have to have a 13. And we've got proposals for all of that. We'd be fine if the General Assembly took up any of that. Um, but most importantly, we can't have politicians drawing it with the intent to benefit themselves or their political party. And, and, it, and you know, Democrats did it for, for decades, and Republicans have perfected it in the last two cycles. And even Republicans who have benefited from this are starting to say, this is enough. Um, it's a bipartisan problem, and, and it has to have a bipartisan solution because it doesn't work otherwise. Okay, so that was my conversation with Brian Cannon. Um, let's check back in with Brian Olson. Well, I continued my conversation with Brian Olson about uh, what states are doing it right and what the country would look like without gerrymandering. And he had a lot to say about that. What would a state or the United States look like without gerrymandering? So the maps that I make, instead of having lots of fiddly bits that reach into each other around the district boundaries, my maps look like soap bubbles. And there's a good physical analogy there in that soap bubbles you know, are very efficient and they, they cling to the most efficient shape possible to fill the space. And that's kind of, kind of what I was going for. And in my view, a district, what a district is for is that it should be to represent a local region, a locality. You know, the thought that these people live in the same area and so they have some common interest, whether it's an environmental factor being rivers and streams and, and that part of the environment, or if they're in an agricultural area or if they're in an industrial area, these people live together and have some common interests and they should have their local representative who can represent those interests in their state legislature and in Congress. So that's what I think districting should be. Um, and we'll, you know, see if that can happen. What do you think it would take for it to happen? My ideal would be a new Voting Rights Act 
that applied nationally. The original Voting Rights Act applied to a few states that had done some bad things around voting and elections in the past. I would like to see rules that apply to the whole country about what you can and cannot do when creating state legislature and congressional districts. Uh, if necessary, this might need to be a constitutional amendment, but I think giving, given the history of things like the Voting Rights Act that it can, can apply to states, I think simply a federal law would be a good first step. Would the country lean more or less uh, in one direction, one political direction, if there wasn't gerrymandering? Would we be more Republican or more Democrat, or does that not so, play into it? Right. You, you know, we said earlier that both parties are doing this where they can, but the current estimates are that there is a net shift of 10 to 20 in favor of Republicans because of Republican gerrymanders in more states in more seats. So the U.S. House would shift uh, 10 to 20 seats away from the Republicans if they didn't have all of their state legislatures doing gerrymandering. Amazing. And that's also why I want a national law, because I don't want the unilateral disarmament problem where one state gives up their gerrymander and now they're still living under a Congress affected by the gerrymanders of all the other states. Um. What did you discover that was unexpected? Uh, you, you mentioned something about something called proportional representation. Yeah, I think the most unexpected thing I discovered while studying districting and gerrymandering is that sometimes a district isn't what people actually want. Uh, the, you know, I said a district I think should be for representing a local group of people, but now people are much more uh, global in their interests, or at least national, people don't necessarily identify with the people from their region as much as people who they identify with for other reasons. So you might identify more with your party, your church, you, some environmental cause, uh, some you know, LGBTQ issues, anything, uh, conservation, hunting. You might identify with a variety of things more than you identify with your town. And people have moved around over the last 50 years a lot. So I think what some people actually want is not geographic representation, but ideological representation. And so the idea of proportional representation is that it, any group, any constituency that can get together 15% of the vote should get 15% of the seats in a state legislature, for example. If you have 100 state legislators, then... 15 of them should be for the I like forests party or five of them for, should be for the I like beer party uh, and these kinds of things. And, you know, uh, four of them will be for some particular Christian group that really, really wants to get together and get involved in, uh, in electoral politics. And some of them will be Democrats and some of them will be Republicans and some of them will be libertarians and some of them will be greens. And to whatever extent, your group shows up to vote, you get that many seats in the state legislature. Some of what the recent court decisions around state legislature districting as it is now is saying that, except that it's only saying proportionality for the two parties. They're wow. saying uh, in Wisconsin, a recent Wisconsin decision hinged on the point of 
the districts do not elect representatives to the two parties in proportion to the statewide membership in the two parties. But proportional representation systems can be much more flexible than that. Joyce? That's fascinating. I mean, that sounds, that really does sound like the fair way to govern. Are there any countries doing that? Yes. Um, the Irish National Senate is elected uh, using a method called single transferable vote that allows you to vote for your candidates. You rank them first, second, third, and so on. And if you don't get your first choice, you might get your second choice. And if your first choice is wildly popular, you still get part of your vote transferred to your second choice. So that can have an effect, too. And this is exactly the system that I think is the state of the art in what we should try. And it's even here in the U.S. a little bit. The City Council of Cambridge, Massachusetts uses it. But that's only six seats. So you can't explore the, the finer grain of proportional representation. Wow. So what, what chance do you think that has of becoming more prevalent? It's kind of a long shot, but I would love to see just one state decide to uh, switch one of their state legislature houses to proportional representation. And I think that could happen. Uh, Maine just enacted a reform to go to uh, instant runoff voting. And it's not my favorite system, but it shows that reform is possible. And so I think, you know, sometime in the next 10 years, it could happen. And I would love it if we could build a movement to get people interested in that. representation. That's something that I never thought of before, never really heard of before. So that's an amazing concept. That would be yeah. amazing if it worked here. Yeah, this is the first time I'm even hearing about it. Um, and I mean, we did a little research about that, but I'd never even thought about that. It makes sense. It makes total sense. It makes total sense. Why aren't we doing that already? Why, did, why hasn't it just been a thing? So we looked into it and we found out that, what countries, Canada is Lebanon. looking into doing it. Lebanon is even looking into doing it. Yeah, so it looks like election reform is a big thing worldwide. Like everybody's trying to figure out how to better represent their people if they're in a democratic situation. Yeah, I think this is not the last we're going to be hearing about proportional representation. And gerrymandering... Uh, we did a little research also to see um, what the latest news is there. And there actually is some movement happening. It's pretty great. I mean, there's some backtracking in some states, but there's actually movement forward. I think what we're finding out is gerrymandering is complicated. Well, at least there are some states that are making progress. Uh, Michigan. Yep. Wisconsin. Yep. And Pennsylvania. California is still strong. There are places that are working on this. And I think it's really important, as annoying as it is that there are steps backwards, I think it's important to remember that this is a bipartisan issue, that you've had presidents from JFK, Reagan, George Sr., everybody has come out against gerrymandering. So this isn't something 
that anybody really wants unless you happen to be the person the that's person sitting body. yeah the person sitting in the seat but most people are against it and i think brian cannon pointed out and and i'd like to remind us is that a good way to find out if your candidate is a legit person is if they're against gerrymandering i mean if they're not check them they're trying to stay in there for for a long time without doing anything so that's what we know about gerrymandering right now uh our episodes aren't always going to be about politics but we were super interested in this and we were so blown away that gerrymandering is legal that it's been happening for so long and it seems like we didn't know most of our friends didn't know much about it that's what started us down this path of wanting to know about gerrymandering um but most of our episodes are probably not going to be about politics. Uh, here and there they will be. But every episode is going to be about something that either uh, blew us away, pissed us off, or um, I don't know, just made us happy and excited. Thank you for joining us. At are you fucking shitting me? I mean, this one's a little heavy, but they won't all be. We really just love to find out stuff. Sometimes it pisses us off and sometimes it tickles us. And we hope that it does for you, too. So thanks again. This is Rachel. And this is April. See you next time. Bye-bye.